imagine a, a small tractor with nine lightsabers on the front vaporizing all the rock and soil and a Mandalorian jetpack blowing all the little bits of rock out of tube out the back. A handful of solar developers and wind developers are trying to shave a few years off of the four to six year process that it takes to interconnect a new solar farm to the grid and deliver power to their customer. Welcome to Alpha with me, Stan Kugel. The arcane world of electric energy transmission operates far from public view, but it's crucial to solving the world's energy woes. As part of our series on sustainability, we're taking a deep dive into the world of transmission. We're going underground. Increasingly, solar and wind projects are being held up because there's no way to move the power. No one wants a new transmission line to mar their favorite vista, much less run through their backyard. The United States electric grid has a nameplate capacity of 1.2 terawatts, but another 1.9 terawatts of renewable generation and storage projects are languishing in the so-called interconnection queue. They can't provide us power because they can't connect. How are we going to solve this problem? My guest, Troy Helming, thinks he has the solution. Go underground. His company claims to have the technology to build a vast coast-to-coast -coast underground transmission grid, feasible, affordable, and environmentally benign. If you thought tunneling was boring, strap on your seatbelt. Troy Helming, welcome to Alpha. <laughs> Thank you, Stan. Glad to be here. Troy, Americans are used to nearly 100% reliable electricity. Rolling blackouts, power cuts, broken utilities, those are third world problems. Does America's grid need fixing? Definitely. We in this country have excluded force majeure events, meaning acts of God, weather events in our statistics for reliability. And so it, uh, it overstated how reliable our electric grid is for many, many years. That's changing. And so obviously with the big storm Murray in, in Texas, rolling blackouts in both Texas and California, ice storms, tornadoes, hurricanes taking down our overhead lines. Our grid is quite unreliable. And I can tell you that at least here in, in California, when the fires happen and utilities intentionally shut off the electricity to prevent more fires, it feels like a third world country sometimes. What can Earth Grid do that others can't to solve this problem? Yeah, as you mentioned in your opening remarks, going underground is much more reliable. Uh, nine, underground lines are about nine times more reliable than uh, than overhead and 10 times fewer truck rolls for an underground line. And this is data coming from multiple utilities and studies. So we know it works. And if we compare our grid to, say, Europe, Europe has their, their distribution line, electric lines, power lines are about 80% underground. We're only 8% underground here in the U.S. EarthGrid's technology is plasma, tunnel boring, and trenching. So we can go through even hard rock. Uh, we can go up to 100 times faster and up to 10 times cheaper than existing mechanical means. Assuming permits are in place, what's the cost per mile of new above-ground transmission lines, and what's the cost of underground? Historically, underground has been 7 to 20 times more expensive to put power lines in. Per kilometer, typically, it's a little more than a million per kilometer, um, you know, roughly a million per mile, uh, a little more, depending on the voltage of the line and the location. 
and uh, underground historically has been much more but with earth grids tech if we're going through soil then we can be a little less than the overhead cost and if we're going through rock we can be about the same maybe up to 20 percent more uh, than going through um, than, than overhead lines but uh, again you have that that reliability but more importantly it's it's not just about the cost of the actual construction it's the cost of getting the rights of way which you mentioned you know permitting that can be very high and very difficult for overhead lines and in fact most overhead new power lines that are proposed get killed by community opposition what are the environmental concerns around underground transmission a community opposition disruption of groundwater subsidence seismic activity toxic tailings other reasons that communities might oppose underground transmission yeah there's those are all good ones there's additional concerns that folks have like you know you're going to be tearing up our streets and sidewalks are you going to be damaging our, our landscaping and fences and, and disrupting traffic you know shutting down lanes because utilities are always tearing up tearing up the streets and repairing them and it's it's awful right so uh, in in EarthGrid's case, there uh, are no environmental impacts really because we prefer going deeper, you know, like three to five meters, ten to fifteen feet below the surface. Everybody else wants to be in the soil. Yeah, we prefer going deeper in the bedrock to go, you know, beneath the spaghetti of all the other stuff that's up there. And in in rock, there really aren't any critters that live in the rock, you know, so we're not disturbing anything there. Whereas in the soil, it could be. And unlike horizontal directional drilling, we don't need bentonite or lubricants for our drill bits or other any of the other chemicals that are used that can leach into groundwater. Uh, in fact, I've dug hundreds of tunnels and trenches in my career using conventional means for solar and wind farms. And the cost to dispose of the toxic water caused or you know created um, because of all the required chemicals for horizontal directional drilling it's very expensive and in some places uh, you have to send your truckers you know two to four hours away to find the nearest water treatment plant can that can accept that stuff um, whether there are there's none of that there's the tailings you know because there's no chemicals uh, the tailings are clean we can actually it's sand and gravel and we can actually sell that to construction companies Transmission lines evoke fears of electromagnetic radiation affecting human health. Should we fear power lines buried underground? Excellent question. Uh, and it's a real thing. Uh, EMF does come off of AC lines. DC lines, on the other hand, have zero EMF. A lot of the underground lines put in around the world are DC rather than AC, so there is no EMF. But even if they're AC, the uh, grounding of an overhead line helps to reduce EMF. If you're in the ground, you're constantly grounded. And so the EMF is insulated by the ground itself, whether it's rock or soil. Uh, so it's essentially a non-issue if it's at least uh, uh, about, a, you know, a third, uh, excuse me, two thirds of a meter, roughly two feet or three feet below the surface. Um, then uh, then EMF is a non-issue, even if it's AC. And again, DC lines have no EMF. What rights are required from property owners or the state to build your underground tunnels? You have to obtain subsurface rights, and those are a bit of a patchwork across the United States, meaning each state 
uh, views it differently. Some states bifurcate surface rights from subsurface rights. In fact, most states do that. And then there's a third element where mineral rights might be uh, might have to come into play. But years ago, because I've been developing infrastructure for 30 years, uh, years ago, I, I sat down with some excellent advisors to attorneys who are former state and federal uh, commissioners of you know energy regulatory bodies and we came up with a strategy that has been working very well and that strategy is we become a utility so earth grid has been approved now as a utility in 31 states representing about 86 percent of the us gdp and uh, over 80 percent of the population and what's it mean as a utility, just like AT&T and, and Crown Castle, Verizon and others over the, the last several decades have done, we get near guaranteed access to public rights of way. So we can't put our conduits under somebody's house without their permission, but we can put it under any public right of way, which would mean a roadway. So any state, county or city road, we can put our conduits underneath the road or the right of way on either side of the road. Uh, with a non-discretionary uh, permit that doesn't require any public comment period. So uh, it's very difficult for anybody to say no. And in fact, it's impossible, pretty much impossible to say no as long as we meet the local codes. Let's talk about your technology. How does it work? So plasma has been around a long time and uh, it essentially is the ionization of air uh, by passing air over electricity. So we have these tubes kind of think of lightsabers where we create an electric arc or lightning inside a, a steel tube. And then we pass air over that, you know, with an air compressor, we blow air at a high velocity over that and it superheats the air, ionizes it to uh, 27,000 degrees in the core of it and around 7,000 degrees Celsius on the edges. At that temperature, everything vaporizes. We can go through anything. So any kind of rock or soil, we can go through steel, literally anything. However, we can vaporize everything, but that's not ideal because to vaporize rock, it takes seven times more energy than melting it, which in turn takes about twice the energy of spallating the rock. And that's a term most people haven't heard of. I hadn't heard of it before I came up with this idea seven years ago. Spallation means the rock breaks up into sand or gravel little bits. It flakes off. And so we've learned over the last five and a half years of R&D various testing and all these rocks, we've learned the right recipe, the variables that we need to change to optimize to uh, to spallate the rock. That's how we can go so fast and use much less energy. Uh, and that's why we're so much faster and cheaper. How do you spallate rock? Yeah, so if the, the torch is close enough to the surface of the rock, what happens is it creates uh, you have a lot of thermal energy, obviously, all that heat, right? And then there's a bunch of kinetic energy from the air pushing on the rock. And what happens, uh, in addition to the plasma cloud doing some interesting things to the chemistry of the rock, what happens is it creates micro fractures uh, and that stress causes the, the rock to just pop off, little flakes of it just start popping off uh, based on the, again, the chemistry, the heat, the kinetic energy. And there's some sound and light energy in there as well, but that's somewhat de minimis. And, and so it just causes the rock to expand and get, get stressed and, and uh, fractures to break. And the cohesion at a molecular level is modified so that those fractures allow it to just pop off. And then we vacuum it out 
and as I said, sell the, the flakes or the bits of rock to uh, companies for road base and uh, the, the sand we sell for concrete manufacturing. Are there toxic fumes from this process? We've been testing for years and looking for those. Yes, nitrogen oxide um, is, is a harmful gas, but that's the same thing that comes out of our tailpipes of, of any, well, not mine. I've been driving electric for more than 10 years, but uh, for folks who are still um, burning, uh, you know, burning fuel, fossil fuel and, and, and exploding uh, pistons inside their engine, yes, uh, nitrogen oxides. So, uh, and it's fairly a fairly small amount. Um, so we can either uh, vent it, we can um, put in scrubbers if needed. And the other thing that we've done and tested is switching from air as our input to gaseous nitrogen. Our atmosphere is comprised of more than 70% nitrogen, so nitrogen is pretty cheap. Uh, and it's, it's abundant, it's most of what we breathe. Um, anyway, and so switching to nitrogen, uh, almost eliminates the, the NOx because there's no oxygen uh, interacting with the rock. Hmm. Is the boring process continuous? Uh, take us through the process. Right. Um, and, and I should also point out that we're we're doing two types of, of, uh, of digging, basically tunnels, which you've just mentioned, and I'll answer your question, but we also do trenches, meaning from the top down, we dig ditches. Uh, and the reason we built a trenching machine um, is because some of our customers have said, yeah, we need some tunnels, but we also need trenches. They want to bury their fiber, power, water lines. And in the hills and mountains, you might have a thin layer of soil and then it's hard rock like granite or gray whack or something, greenstone. And uh, they have to use jackhammers to get through it. You know, it's just way too hard to, to use uh, conventional means. So we do both. But in both cases, they are continuous. In the case of tunneling, we have, you know, imagine a, a small tractor with nine lightsabers on the front, vaporizing all the rock and soil and a Mandalorian jetpack blowing all the little bits of rock out of tube out the back. So the first thing is a tractor with the torches. Behind that is another little tractor with a um, three sets of paving uh, shotcrete spraying. It, we call it our paving tractor, but it's shotcrete spraying arms that line the tunnel with shotcrete concrete and a product like a bar chip, which is a fibrous polymer material that makes the, the, the tunnel strong for seismic as well as watertight. Uh, and then behind that is the, the vacuum cart. So yeah, it's like a little train that goes through and it's continuous. How far can you go from a single access point and how long does it take? We can bore at speeds of anywhere from a, a half a kilometer to one full kilometer per day. So you hear about people running a, a 10K race, which is 6.2 miles. Um, you know, that's a fairly long distance. We could uh, bore that distance in, in 10 days to 20 days. How far we can go depends on one thing, the voltage of the electricity from the grid that we connect to, to power the machine. Our inputs are electricity and air or nitrogen, right? And to make nitrogen, we, you know, we take, pull nitrogen from the air and that also uses electricity. So there's no combustion of any fossil fuels in our process. Uh, but to power the machine, we need about 1.5 megawatts for a trenching machine and about eight megawatts for a tunneling machine. So, you know, it's not that much. Um, neighborhood lines, the ubiquitous wooden power poles everywhere, you could easily pull four to four to 10 megawatts off of those lines. Sometimes in some parts of the day, you might have to, or we might have to scale down based on what the utility tells us uh, during peak times. But we can go about, let's see, 22 to 30 kilometers 
um, between connection points if we're at a fairly low 12,000, you know, fairly low voltage of 12,000 volts. Uh, if it's a, a beefier line of, say, 34,500 volts, we could go up to uh, 70 kilometers, you know, 60, 70 kilometers, which is about 40 to 50 miles. At what stage is the technology at? How how uh, how far have you been able to demonstrate or put this into practical use? Yeah, we've um, achieved a lot of traction with the 31 state approvals and six patents, you know, a thousand trade secrets and about 100 patent claims. But building the first field ready machine is our biggest accomplishment. And we did that in January of this year. It's a trenching machine, not a tunneling machine. Um, we've done tunneling, uh, small tunneling prototypes, and we've built projects of um, up to 270 meters long, so small ones uh, with tunneling. But the trenching machine is live, it's out making money, six figures of, of revenue per month on average. Uh, with customers out in the field, and it's working really, really well uh, now. Although at first in January it wasn't, we had uh, you know some learnings. Um, we've hardened the system, and improved it, and upgraded it substantially over the last six months or so to uh, you know to to be able to operate it um, you know in virtually any kind of condition. So we're very excited about that. Meanwhile, uh, we are raising money right now to buy the rest of the roughly $12 million worth of materials for the tunneling machine. We've purchased uh, more than more than two thirds of it. Uh, we still need about uh, three to four million dollars worth of uh, materials uh, to continue to manufacture it. We've started manufacturing it, but again, we're waiting for the rest of the supplies. If things continue to go well with our fundraising, uh, and every week we're raising between two hundred and six hundred thousand dollars. So if that keeps up, then we should have all the materials ordered to have that first prototype big tunneling machine ready by the end of the first quarter of next year. Going back to the nation's transmission and interconnection problems, who pays for building the new transmission lines needed? Yeah, great question. So it's a mixture of um, the line, the new lines that get approved, and and if they're overhead again, you know, something like eighty or ninety percent of them die along the way and never get built. But the ones that actually get built, it's a about one third of them are built by utilities, and ratepayers are paying for them uh, because they're in the service territory of that utility. But two thirds of all transmission lines built over the last twenty years are privately owned not built by utilities, not funded by ratepayers in our electric bills. And the private company that builds that, they own and operate the transmission line. Uh, and some of those are underground, you know, but more conventional um, underground uh, using using the you know, more expensive techniques. But anyway, the private company own, owns those lines. They're called merchant transmission lines because they're not, you know, owned by a public, publicly regulated utility. Uh, that charges ratepayers, and they make money by charging a toll, just like on a toll road. We all pay a toll when we drive on it. If any power flows on that line, a toll is charged, and that's how they, um, you know, pay back the construction costs. The construction costs you mentioned are significant—a million dollars or more a kilometer. Are there customers willing to pay those fees to build new transmission lines? 
Absolutely. I'll give you some examples. EarthGrid has signed contracts as well as a number of additional um, signed LOIs and, and discussions with numerous customers that are willing to pay for this in the form of a toll. And I'll give you uh, an example. We have a handful of solar developers and wind developers who are trying to shave a few years off of the four to six year process that it takes to interconnect a new solar farm to the grid and deliver power to their customer. They don't want to wait four to six years to go through that process, right? And so they heard about our tech and our company and the fact that we're a utility in, in states they operate in. And so they've said, hey, can you dig a, a tunnel or a trench from our solar farm to the steel factory or the data center that wants to buy power from us and we're like sure and they're like okay how much would it cost you know and 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 we tell them and they're like well is there a way that you guys can you know because we're willing to either build it for them and you know sell the the tunnel and trench to them or we're willing to build it on our own expense using our own investment capital, which is non-dilutive, you know, project finance, basically a construction loan. Uh, and we would own and operate it. That's our BOOM model, which stands for build, own, operate, and maintain. Anyway, so we would charge them, say, 10 to $15 per megawatt hour. And we've told our, our customers, you know, we that's what we've quoted. And they ran the math on that. They said, yeah, it works in our power purchase agreement with our customer. We can afford that because that's actually about the same price as the wheeling cost in Texas or other states, um, you know, the transmission wheeling cost. They have to pay that anyway. And so in this case, because our costs are so low to, to do the tunneling or trenching, uh, that's what it takes for us to get about a three and a half to four year payback with one customer paying us that toll. What you've called the booming model, uh, build, own, operate, maintain, would entail quite significant capital costs for your company. Is there investor capital available to fund those kinds of private lines? There are. In fact, you know, I've been in renewable energy for nearly 30 years, and I've arranged billions of dollars of what's called project finance. And as I alluded to earlier, that means if you have a long-term contract, like a 20-year agreement with a solar farm selling power to you know Microsoft or some other big tech company, that's a very credit-worthy project and customer, right? And if you have a 20-year contract with that customer, you can go get a loan against that contract to build the solar farm or the wind farm. That's what I've been doing for nearly 30 years. This is the same thing. And so we have that 20 or 30 year tolling agreement with a very credit worthy project or customer. And then I go raise non-dilutive project plans. So we would form a separate LLC for each project and the lender would loan money to that LLC for us to do the construction to build the project. And a typical transmission line underground project, it's a lot, 50 million to, to $300 million. Uh, and it used to be that that project underground would be you know, a billion or two. What's the cost of capital for a project like that? What equity is required? And what is the profit available to the equity holders in such a project? Yep, uh, excellent questions. Interest rates have gone up. It used to be you could get project finance loans in the mid 4% range. Now they're up to 5.5% or so, low 5, mid 5% range on the, on the debt. 
how much equity is, is required depends on the project. And it's really the debt service coverage ratio that is permitted by the lender. The lender is gonna look at the credit worthiness of the contract, you know, so if it's a big tech company or a steel company that's, you know, uh, Fortune 2000, then they're good with that if it's investment grade. They'll look at that and they'll say, all right, our debt service coverage ratio is like a 1.25 or a 1.3, and I don't wanna get too detailed unless you want me to, but um, basically they'll look at that and that will, determine how much equity is needed. If the project is juicy and has really, really good payback, like I mentioned, four-year payback or better, you can put 90, 95% debt on that project. Uh, if it's a you know seven to 10 year payback, then you're looking at more like 60, 70, maybe 75% debt and the rest is equity. However, of the equity, a big portion of the equity is the non-cash development fee of the developer whether it's EarthGrid or anybody else or a solar or wind farm developer or another merchant transmission, the development, what I mean by that is getting the rights of way, then getting the permits, then doing the engineering, then getting the customer contract signed and you know, so on and so forth, interconnection agreements done. And you'll spend a few hundred thousand dollars on that, but the value of the project is then worth 10 or 20 X that, you know, and so the equity can be, all right, you spend, uh, you know, a couple hundred thousand bucks, and now you've got a project that's worth before construction, that's worth, you know, $2 million, $4 million. And in some cases, that's all the equity you need. Do you have such projects shovel ready, as they say? Uh, no, but they're close. We have four projects that are in development. Um, two of them in Texas should be shovel ready by this fall. One of them in California should be shovel ready by hopefully the end of the year and the other California project by first or second quarter of next year. Have any public utilities decided to take the risk on your way of building transmission lines? Yes, um, we're talking to many of them, but one in particular that I can discuss uh, is the largest utility in the country, PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric. And I've been working with PG&E for more than 10 years, you know, developing solar farms in their territory and so forth. <clears throat> we applied for a public program through ADL Ventures that was sponsored by PG&E as well as the United States Department of Energy. And they were looking for innovations to help PG&E bury the 10,000 miles, 16,000 kilometers of power lines that they want to bury to stop causing all the fires in California. And we're the first and so far the only company that they have started working with. Yes, um, we uh, expect to deploy very soon. Uh, we're waiting for this final snow to melt on a site near Highway 70 in Northern California. Uh, and they need uh, trenching. They're, they're doing. Uh, they want trenching as well as digging ground vaults where they make the splices of the cable. It's all in granite and hard rock in the Sierra Mountains. Uh, so we're excited to deploy our trenching machine on that job site in the next few weeks. In addition, they've asked us for. Uh, and by the way, that's what we call boring and drilling as a simple service, where PG&E is just going to pay us per cubic meter of rock removed. Uh, and, and and by the way, we're also working with MGE Underground, one of their primary contractors will be a subcontractor to MGE, uh, who also has a contract with PG&E doing this work. So we're going to get you know a lot of work there. Um, anyway, um, that's boring and drilling as a simple service where they pay us per meter, and that spells badass. Um, but we also talked to Boom, <laughs> uh, or it's, oh, excuse me, also talked to PG&E about our uh, Boom model, and they got excited about that. So we're meeting again with their team next week 
um, to bury some some transmission lines where we will own the tunnel or trench ourselves and they will just put their lines inside it and pay us a, a, a long-term lease payment. We'll publish a link to Troy's company, EarthGrid, in the show notes. Troy Helming, thank you for joining us on Alpha. Stan, thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here.